This is Exchanges Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. Today, we're going to be talking about a timely topic as it relates to the public markets, direct listings, and the changing nature of the IPO market. I'm joined in our New York studio here by David Ludwig, head of America's equity capital markets in Goldman Sachs Investment Banking Division. David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jake. It's good to be here. So last week, we hosted a conference out in Las Vegas that brings together private companies with investors in the space. Explain a little bit about what that conference is and why we host it. Absolutely. This is our ninth annual private innovative company conference where we gathered the next generation of emerging technology companies together with over 500 attendees from the venture capital, corporate, and private equity communities. This setting has actually become one of the key events that allows those companies who are driving disruption to connect and network with those with the foresight to fund long-term vision. So, David, given the market backdrop you described, why is there interest right now in different ways of helping companies approach and enter the public markets? So, Jake, when you think about the continuous evolution in the equity market and some of the step functions that happened over the last decade, there has to be different alternatives to just a true IPO. And for decades, the IPO has been the primary avenue for companies to debut in the public markets and raise capital to the extent necessary. But the needs of a lot of companies have ultimately changed. And so what we've been focused on is how do we help companies list in the way that's best suited for them. And so when you think even about the IPO, the IPO has evolved with greater customization, a focus on transparency, and removal of the frictions that our clients are focused on. But at the same time, we're very excited about some of the new pathways that have emerged over the last handful of years. Most notably, in the last couple of years, the direct listing, which we discussed in depth at PIC this year. And Goldman's been really proud that we served the lead advisor on the first two direct listings, Spotify and Slack. Both of those were very successful in how those companies debuted in the public market, and each one of our clients' objectives were achieved over the course of those processes. And we expect to be at the forefront of continued innovation in the months and years to come and believe that companies entering the public market should be considering a direct listing and ultimately seeking the pathway that best achieves their objectives. Well, David, thanks for that introduction, and thanks for joining us today. My pleasure being here. As David mentioned, last week at our conference in Las Vegas, I sat down with Barry McCarthy, CFO of Spotify, Greg Rogers, a partner at Latham & Watkins, and Will Connolly, who works in equity capital markets with David here at Goldman Sachs, to talk all things direct listings. Listen into that conversation next. All right. Thank you. I'm Jake Seward. I work at Goldman Sachs. I'm joined by, uh, we'll go from the far side to the near side, uh, Greg Rogers, who's a partner at Latham & Watkins and has been counsel on the two major public listings. Barry McCarthy, who's the CFO at Spotify, who is the real trailblazer in leading the Spotify direct listing, which was the first major company to use that approach. And Will Connolly, who runs technology equity capital markets at Goldman Sachs. Thank you all for coming. And Will, I'll just turn it over to you to do a sort of broad overview of how we got here. Talk a little bit about the history of public markets in 30 seconds or less and the evolution of the last couple of years. I'll try to keep it short and we won't start with the mutual fund in 1924 or anything like that. But <laughs> the reality is, you know, companies have been listing in the public markets for hundreds of years and Goldman Sachs has been helping companies list or, or uh, succeed in the public markets for over a hundred years. But in the reality over that period of time, a lot of things have changed. So markets have changed, information availability has changed, capital availability has changed, uh, and businesses have changed as well. And so you have businesses with the benefit of technology that have built to scale much more quickly 
than they could have in the past. And you've also had several companies that have made the choice to raise a significantly greater amount of capital in the private markets than they would have ever done before. And against that backdrop, companies' needs and objectives are changing. Uh, and when those needs and objectives change, it makes sense that people would seek out new ways to enter the public markets and seek out a more diverse set of approaches to enable them to be successful against their objectives. And I think from our perspective, you know, we had the unique opportunity to work uh, with both Spotify and Slack as the lead advisor on their direct listings over the course of the last couple years. And, you know, we're thrilled for their success and Barry in particular in really being the innovative force behind this new technology, if you will. And we're excited about the opportunity to continue to seek innovation on behalf of our clients. I think the interesting thing is a fascinating topic and a lot of people have perspectives and it's getting a lot of discussion right now, which is great. It's put a new rigor on you know, the process or thinking around going public across a wide range of uh, matters. And um, so I think that's fantastic. And in particular, we couldn't have two better people to talk about it with this group here today. You know, Barry is the visionary and the vanguard and really you know, had the foresight and confidence to believe you could do something a different way and, and do that successfully. And Greg, uh, who served as both counsel to Barry and the Spotify team, but counsel to Goldman Sachs around Slack, uh, has really played a leading role in creating the legal framework and evolving the legal frameworks. We'll talk about evolution to make this a successful option for companies to consider. Barry, you're the trailblazer, the pioneer. What gave you the confidence to know that it was obviously risky to do it, but what gave you the confidence to know that it was the right thing to do for Spotify? And you'd been CFO at another public company. Maybe that perspective informed your decision. And what were the objectives you were trying to achieve? Before I answer that, let me just suck up to my host and say, no Goldman Sachs, no Spotify, because every step of the way, they, they were there to lead the financings and into the public marketplace. And how much of an innovator was I? I just took a, a, an old, tired idea that already existed in the public markets and recrafted it uh, and applied it to a tech IPO. And, you know, I was smart enough to turn to Greg and say, do this for me. <laughs> no, Latham, no, direct listing. So when I took Netflix public, the 12 months prior to going public, I think we had um, 600,000 subs, 71 million of revenue, $13 million of cash on the balance sheet. And then that was in 2002. In 2010, when I left for that calendar year, there were 21 million subs, 2 billion of revenue, 150 million of cash, net of debt. When we were thinking about taking Spotify public, we had 4.2 billion of revenue. We had 1.7 billion of net cash on the balance sheet. And we had 71 million subs. And so I realized that it was one of those Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore moments. And for a long time, I, I have watched the public market and thought that it was chronically broken. And I thought surely there must be a better way. So there are a couple of things I was trying to solve for. One is it's just an IPO without the O. And we had a billion seven of cash, which we couldn't even begin to deploy at the time. So if we'd gone public, we would have sold 12 to 15% of the market cap in order to have a liquid secondary market. So it would have been a one and a half, two and a half billion dollar size transaction for what? Two, we wanted liquidity. In a traditional process, everybody gets locked up for 180 days. Maybe that lockup gets staggered. It violated a core principle for us. We had 2,100 shareholders. We had employees who had owned the stock for a long period of time. We wanted them to have the opportunity to get liquid. Same time, other shareholders were able to get liquid. Three, we had this 
core value around radical transparency. We've been absolutely transparent with our private shareholders. We wanted to take the same approach with public shareholders. And there's this quiet period that's imposed by the 33 Act when you're going public and the staff graciously agreed to work with us to allow us to both give guidance and to host an investor day. If you want to understand what the best practice is for dealing with investors, look to the public market. All public market companies don't have road shows. They have investor days, and they present the entire strategy over three or four hours. The investors get to see the entire management team. We got to put it up on the web and make it simultaneously available to everybody in the world. At, at the same time, I think we had something like 27,000 streams in that first day when we, we put it up there. We had educational videos about how the business model worked and through we used the, the power of the web to help people engage in the process. And then lastly, we wanted market-based price discovery and every stock, including direct listing stocks, open exactly the same way every day. And so when we looked at the the universe of companies that have gone public, particularly transactions over a billion dollars, it looked to us like you had a one in 10 chance of having a successful offering. And a successful offering defined by the bank would vary a little bit by bank, would be something like 27 to 30% price increase on the first day of trading, on the close on the first day of trading as compared with the issue price. So there's all this friction that gets introduced into the process. Lockups is one of them. And you've got hedge funds shorting into the lockup expiration, and there's market stabilization, and then they're artificially limiting the demand in order to stoke the price, and it's just all bullshit. And I had this core belief that wisdom of crowds trumps experts. And if we just would eliminate the friction and get out of the way, the marketplace would find equilibrium like that. And that is, in fact, what happened, which is why we get to sit up here today. <laughs> you talk about having the market decide the, the price and, and deciding who gets the shares. Most of the people in this room have had the ability so far to choose their shareholders and, and choose their prices. What's that transition like? Look, as a public company, you don't have any control over who your shareholders are. And if you think you're going to, you need to lie down until the thought passes and get back up. <laughs> the best you can hope to do is go spend time with people you think are really smart and convince them that they ought to own the stock too. So you can encourage some people to buy it based on the way you allocate your time, but you can't prevent others from owning the stock once it becomes public. I would say a related insight is that the long-term shareholders that the banks are gonna encourage you to spend your time with, Fidelity and T. Rowe and, and others, who are gonna buy the stock and put it away on the shelf, have no influence whatsoever on your stock price. None. Because they don't participate in the price setting mechanism. They're sitting out the dance. As I watched over time at the average size trade in Netflix from 2002 to 2010, it just dove for the floor, even as the total volume increased dramatically. And it's the, because the high frequency traders are now part of the game. And it's the momentum guys and the high frequency guys who set the price. So go spend time with the big guys because one, they can buy a lot of stock so you get a good return on your investment of time. Two, they're super smart. They have great insights. So you'll learn a lot. Those will be more enjoyable meetings, but don't do it because you think it will help your stock price. It won't. Greg, you were counsel of Spotify. You were counsel of the Goldman on the Slack direct listing. Barry mentioned how the SEC allowed certain things. How is the SEC approaching this phenomenon, and particularly as, as it starts to maybe take off next year? And what should companies be thinking about in terms of their risk, direct listing versus IPO? Spotify came around at a, a, exactly the right time in the sort of regulatory 
regime. I mean, we got very lucky with Barry being an innovator. Barry's boss, Daniel, is you know a, a disruptor in his business. But over on the SEC side, we got sort of lucky. The chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, is an ex-deal guy himself. The head of corporate finance is a guy named Bill Hinman. He, you know, he's a deal guy from the Valley. So from a very you know, top-down perspective, we got a lot of support for trying to do something new. Uh, that's sort of the good news. The bad news is the SEC's mandate is to protect the small investor. So once we got buy-in at the high level, there was a ton of work to work out the details. And uh, you know, Spotify did, you know, took about a year roughly from start to finish. A normal way IPO is more like six months. That incremental time was all spent working out details with the staff among several work streams, you know, what the disclosure would look like. We did REGM, that's market manipulation rulemaking. The NYSC required its own rulemaking. Now, the good news for the people in this room is we were involved in a meeting literally today in Washington, D.C., where one of the top regulators referred to the way that Spotify and Slack did their listings as the old way, and it's totally fine. So two is now a, a playbook we can follow, and as long as you know the, you know the secret sauce, you should be fine if you go that route. So the documentation is similar, but what are the trade-offs from a legal perspective? Do you see any gradations in the risk right. for the issuer? Or? Yeah, so that, that's still wide open. Um, you know, we haven't had any jurisprudence that would test the relative liability regimes. But I personally think that on an apples-to-apples basis, and, and you got to make some assumptions, right, because a normal IPO would be a 15 to 20% float probably. Slack traded like 30% on the first day, so it's more shares trading more shares, theoretically, more liability. But the direct listing has a few good things going for it. One, a lot of those trades are actually not under the registration statement. I won't get into it with you guys, but there's two ways shares sell in a direct listing. One is under the registration statement. One is pursuant to Rule 144, which has a much lower liability regime associated with it. And the mix is very important. Actually, in Spotify, there were very few, we believe, they're hard to trace, which is the second advantage I'll get to, very few actual registered sales. To the tracing point, a plaintiff should, in theory, have to make a registration-related claim, trace its purchase back to the registration statement. In a normal way, IPO, that's pretty easy because all of the shares for the first six months were registered shares. Everything else is locked up. In a direct listing, the whole pre-listing float becomes available. Many of those sales are happening under Rule 144. Our litigators like the tracing argument there. And then third, there's just a different damages analysis. All these, you know, this, the suits we're talking about are mainly stock drop suits, and you usually get tagged for the difference between what the uh, company sold at and what it dropped to. In a direct listing with market-based pricing, I mean, the, what's the argument? We'll see that play out, but I think on an apples-to-apples basis, we like the chances. So we'll talk a little bit about the bank's role. And assess you know, the two direct listings, the two big ones. How do institutional investors feel about that? several years in. Yeah. Well, look, I think the two direct listings were hands down successful. Barry walked through his objectives and those objectives were achieved and Slack had slightly different objectives and we made a few tweaks and their objectives were achieved. So the first two direct listings were definitely successful and that's why you'll see more of them. One of the interesting things about first to the second is we did see in some respects a shift in investor participation. Investors who talked to us after Spotify's direct listing and said, that was a difficult process for us. We don't know how to get our arms around it. We didn't feel comfortable participating in it. Some of those investors actually were some of the most active participants 
in Slack's direct listing. And so that shows the market's learning and the market's capable of learning. So I think that's great from a success perspective. There's still things where the direct listing can get better and continue to evolve, and I think we're going to see that. So there should be more flexibility for more companies to do more different things within the context of direct listing. For example, potentially raising capital. Those are things we're working on. On the other hand, the market should get better at trading direct listings too. And right now they have an N of two, and that N is going to grow, and the market's going to learn. And so the market will have a better ability to handicap. Greg made the reference in IPO, you have a set flow, 10, 15, 20% you know what the supply is for a six month period. In a direct listing, you don't. And I think the market's going to figure that out over time and change or modify their behavior in a similar way just to drive hopefully greater efficiency at the end. As it relates to the bank's role, it's actually not that different. We're doing all of the things we would do in an IPO. We're giving company advice on positioning. We're helping talk through metrics and guidance strategy. We're talking about what investors they should be visiting and, and educating. We're giving advice on the analyst day. You know, we're anticipating what questions people are going to ask. We're making sure the plumbing is going to work so that it goes off without a hitch. We can't execute a roadshow with the company because that would be an underwriting activity. So the company goes on its roadshow by itself. And then we go on our roadshow and go see all the potential sellers and all the potential buyers and have multiple meetings to help inform both sides of the market, how that market's going to develop. And an informed market will hopefully lead to efficient outcomes. And so you actually have multiple roadshows going on in the case of a direct listing between the time the company goes effective and the time the stock actually starts trading. So it, you know, I think it's actually really similar. There's just legally some slight differences about how we go about it. So Barry, what advice would you give to people in this room who are thinking about entering the public markets? And not all of them may have the built-in advantages that you had at Spotify with uh, healthy cash, healthy business, really, without the need for new capital. How should they think about the risks? And, and is there anything that you now would have done a little bit differently having gone through it? Look, there are many elements of the direct listing process that you could make part of a traditional IPO. You could give guidance you, in addition to roadshow, host an investor day. I think those would be smart things to do. You'd still be subject to a lockup and you wouldn't get the benefit of price discovery. And if, you know, depending on the skill set of you and your CFO and the depth of your accounting team, you may not be trying to optimize for your cost of capital and you don't really care about the 30% discount you're going to leave on the table, then a traditional offering will work fine. Looking back on your IPO 10 years from now, you'll realize that notwithstanding all of the hoopla, it's just a financing event. That's all it is. It's a pretty expensive financing event. But you know, from time to time, there are inefficiencies in the capital markets that afford you the opportunity to raise capital in really inexpensive ways. So if your business needs cash, just think opportunistically about where your, your lowest cost of capital is, go get it when the window opens. And then if you have the luxury of being well capitalized, you can think more creatively about your going public event than you know you would if you were cash strapped and absolutely had to have it now. You could raise it before or you could raise it after. Like if you did a secondary transaction, you're gonna pay a 2% discount to the day's close, maybe four. That's it. That's your total transaction cost. So do a direct listing, be public for six months, and then do follow. So Greg, Barry mentioned a secondary. What, what are the chances that the SEC comes around and allows a direct listing with a simultaneous or near simultaneous raising of capital? The SEC's mandate is to have as many public companies as possible. And I think they do recognize that the inability to raise primary capital is a limiter. So I think in the long term, I like our chances there. 
There are a number, uh, similar to the, the first process that got us to the secondary, there are a number of hurdles to overcome, so it'll take a while. In the meantime, as I said, they're very happy with the Spotify Slack playbook. And to Barry's point, you know, you can raise capital before, you can do a 144A convert right after, and then, you know, a year after, your seasoned issuer and can do any sort of, you know, short form registration you like. But I do like the chances long term for a primary cap. And so, Will, as the market evolves and companies explore different options, how are the banks thinking about what they're going to be offering? And will there be a bewildering array of choices or will it be relatively IPO, direct listing or direct listing plus? I think there's going to be a lot of options. And I think we're evolving to an era where you're going to have companies in a lot of different positions with a different set of objectives. And there's no cookie cutter approach that should be employed for every company. Doing something because someone else did it is the best way to get to a bad solution for you. And I think that's the way that people are gonna start looking at it. People are gonna start saying, what am I trying to design? And it'll be more efficient than when Spotify did it because they broke a lot of new ground, but it'll be more efficient and people feel greater license to modify things around their set of objectives. And so I think the direct listing, that, what does that mean? That means the direct listing is here to stay and we're going to see more of them. And I think we're going to see changes. As Greg mentioned, I, I think at some point we'll see primary capital in the direct listing. It also means that the IPO is going to change. And so an ancillary benefit of all this discussion is people have been looking at it and saying, should a lockup exist? Should it not exist? Should we be pricing more aggressively than what was historically a definition of success? And I think those are all really smart questions for companies to be asking. And the result is we're talking about with every company that's thinking about entering the public markets, we're talking about direct listings and we're talking about how we can design something that's successful relative to their objectives. And I think that's a really great outcome. If I could comment on that. Barry made the reference of borrowing tools from the direct listing to the IPO. The same is in reverse. Like Barry chose not to do a traditional roadshow, chose not to do like sort of analyst activity. But you could incorporate that, particularly in a business that was harder to understand than Bonifaz. Yeah, selected bunches of roadshows. Yeah. Um, but you're relying on your underwriters, equity research analysts, to basically teach the street your story. It's important to realize that that educational process doesn't exist in a direct listing. Because there are no analysts that come over the wall, which I happen to think is a good thing. And among the reasons we gave the investor day was to teach the entire analyst community how the business model worked and what our expectations were for future performance. And right after the investor day, all of them began to publish research about Spotify. And suddenly you had this enormous echo chamber that was educating the world of institutional investors about how the business model worked. That doesn't exist in a traditional process. There is no echo chamber. But more importantly, if you're not doing the talking, nobody else is. And so you can hear the sound of crickets. So if you're not prepared to give guidance, if you're not prepared to educate investors, you're going to end up in a really bad place. Imagine it's Friday night. Your partner, significant other, is expecting you for dinner at 7 p.m. And you get stuck at work, and you don't show up till 10, and you didn't call. How do you suppose that ends? Not well, right? And if you had called or emailed and you managed expectations, it would have been a much better outcome. It's the same relationship with institutional investors. However little you know about your business, you know a lot more than they do. And so if you leave it for them to fill in the blanks, it's going to end badly for you. So I couldn't encourage you strongly enough to give guidance and give real guidance. Because if you're just going to sandbag your guidance, then you're going to outperform your guidance. All you're doing is teaching them to ignore you. You might as well not have participated in the conversation in the first place because they are going to ignore you and they start setting their own expectations for the performance of your business.
So don't go do a direct listing if you're not prepared to give guidance. So uh, before we get a question or two, I'm going to ask you to make a prediction for next year, not who's going to win the presidential election, although we, that would be fun. But how many direct listings do you think we'll see next year? I'll start with you, Greg. We talk about this a lot. I have some inside information on this topic. I'd say at least five. Barry, you have no inside information. What do you no, think? No, I have no idea. I mean, I solved our problem. I have no idea what the rest of the world is about. <laughs> I Will, also, yeah, you I must will. have some insight. We're working on it with a number of companies right now, and I would anticipate that there'll be more next year than there have been in totality to date. Okay, so three plus. <laughs> My guess is so it, it, there's continued momentum until somebody falls in their face, and then there'll be a reset. That's, that's true of the IPO as well. All right, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors on market-moving topics, be sure to check out our new podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. This podcast was recorded on October 8, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. The information contained in this podcast was prepared for general information purposes only, does not constitute research, advice, or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener and is not a substitute for personalized financial advice. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Goldman Sachs and its affiliates expressly disclaim any liability, including any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage for this podcast and its content.